This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Yeah, that's it. Thanks, Claudia, and thank you all for the applause, but that announcement really should send you all home tonight to seek the Lord in desperate prayer, and I will be... <laughs> I will be there joining you because, honestly, it's one thing to, you know, pop into this pulpit every few weeks from my study and give a sermon and then hop into a waiting taxi and speed out of here. It's quite another thing to, you know, shepherd the people of God with the kind of faithfulness and love that, um, that God expects. So please pray for me that I'd be able to discharge this um, ministry over the next few months with um, confidence and a good conscience. And so that we all get, you know, we all get served by the Lord and enjoy his goodness together. I mean, the thing to remember is that people are going to come and go. We're going to have different people and different leaders coming and going in this church. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the chief shepherd of this church. He is the lead pastor, and the rest of us are just ministering his grace. And I want to join with John the Baptist in his words I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. That is the Christ over there. And your desire should not be to be filled with all the fullness of Bart because my barrel is very tiny and my supplies are very meager, but there is much fullness and much grace in God. And what I want to do is to direct your eyes week after week to all the good that is in him. As Martin Luther said, it is not we who sustain the church. It's not we who sustain the church, nor was it those who came before us nor will it be those who come after us. It was and is and will be the one who says, I am with you always, even to the end of time. And that is just as true today as it was 500 years ago when the German reformer wrote those words. The church is sustained by God's power and it exists for his glory. And our chief calling and our highest destiny as the people of God is to be worshipers, to bow down before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to sing his wonderful praises forever and ever. And that's why we're starting a brief series today we're just going to call True Worship. And at the moment, we're looking at the following three messages for this month. First ones today, we're going to talk about celebrating God's great goodness. And then next week, Pastor David's going to be preaching on drawing near through Christ from Hebrews 9 and 10. And then finally, we're going to be meditating on what it means to turn to God from dead idols. Now, obviously, there are many more aspects of worship that we could cover. But if we can at least apply these three basic lessons well, we're going to be on our way to worship that truly pleases the heart of God. So, my theme this afternoon, and it's a good one, is about how true worship is about celebrating the great goodness of our God. And for that, let's turn to Psalm 145, Psalm 145. And as you turn there, it's going to be on the, on the screen as well. In Hebrew, the book of Psalms was called the Tehillim, the songs of praises, the songs of praises. The strange thing is, the individual Psalms, the 100, 150 poems that make up the book, they have many different titles, but only one is called a song of praise, and it's Psalm 145. It's as though the whole book takes its name from this psalm. 
And Psalm 145 significance is also highlighted in its placement right near the end of the book, right before the five-fold hallelujah of Psalms 146 to 150. Each of those psalms begins with praise the Lord, praise the Lord, which is what hallelujah means. So Psalm 145 is the closing psalm before the final epilogue that closes the book. And it's the last of the 73 psalms of David. So there are several flashing arrows pointing to this psalm. This is the crescendo to which the entire book has been building. And it's for good reason that for 1,500 years, Psalm 145 has formed part of the daily prayers of faithful Jews. Ever since the Talmud declared that whoever repeats Psalm 145 three times daily with sincerity is assured a place in the world to come. Now, I'm not authorized to make such a bold promise this afternoon. I'm not the interim pastor yet. But I'm confident that if this prayer works its way into our hearts, if not in exact words, in its essence, that we are partaking now in the worship that's always going on above and in which we're fully going to join in God's coming kingdom. So, let's read Psalm 145. A psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Now one thing we miss in our English translations in this psalm is that David's poem is actually an acrostic, one of nine in the psalms. In other words, each verse in this psalm 
begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. So verse 1 begins with Aleph, verse 2 with Bet, and so on. So this isn't just a stream of consciousness where David is scribbling down whatever random thoughts about God pop into his brain. As artists do, he's submitting to a constraint for the sake of creativity. And besides being an aid to memorization and an oral culture, the acrostic form gives a sense of order and progress. So by the time the poet reaches the last letter of the alphabet, you get the sense that the subject has been thoroughly covered. And you might expect this artificial device to be kind of cramping and limiting, but it's obviously no obstacle for the full expression of David's mind and emotions as he praises God. And I wonder if there's a lesson here for some of us freewheeling, charismatic types. Spontaneous worship is not necessarily more spiritual. God is honored when we take the time to reflect and prepare. And just imagine if this afternoon the worship team had just wandered in without practicing, we all just sang whatever words occurred to us, and I preached off the top of my head. It would be chaos. What we call in English a dog's breakfast. It would just be a mess. Because we need at least some order to give us space for the true spontaneity of the spirit that arises in our hearts when we are singing in worship. It's ordered celebration. Remember that here is David, the man after God's own heart, filled with the spirit, and he's using an acrostic. He's pulling out his wax tablet or whatever he wrote on. He's writing down A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then he's sucking on his pencil thinking, okay, what begins with A? That's how he's writing this poem. And he begins his poem by announcing his commitment to praise my God, the King. In fact, every single verse of this psalm, if you glance down, is a verse of praise. There are other psalms of lament and petition in this altar, quite a few, in fact, but not this one. David here is not complaining or pleading. He's simply reveling in the greatness of his God. And what a good discipline it would be for us, wouldn't it? to set set aside our needs and our difficulties for just a few moments and worship God in joyful self-forgetfulness. Would that not be a good thing for our souls? Notice, by the way, the many synonyms for worship in the first seven verses. There's exalting, praising, extolling, commending, speaking, meditating, proclaiming, celebrating, and singing. And this rich vocabulary of worship suggests that worship is something that calls forth many dimensions of our personalities. In fact, both the Hebrew words for praising and for singings seem to have their origin in the sounds la-la-la and na-na-na, as if they express joy in God so exuberant it cannot be expressed in words. La-la-la-la, na-na-na-na. It's this joy bubbling over. Yes, the man of God may have used an acrostic, but... He also danced with abandon in the streets. So that's a word for you dour Presbyterians here, okay? I picked on the Pentecostals. This is for the rest of us who are more reasoned and ordered. There is a joy bubbling forth in worship that should occur when we encounter our great God. As I said, David begins with a personal commitment to worship. He will praise God's name forever and ever. 
He's not just blazing up for God momentarily. His coals of worship would glow hot for God until the day he died. When the great evangelist John Wesley lay on his deathbed after a long and eventful life, his friends and disciples gathered around, carefully recorded the two things he kept repeating. The first one was, best of all, God is with us. And the second was a line from, the, from Isaac Watts, I'll praise my maker while I have breath. I'll praise my maker while I have breath. They say that the ruling passion is strong in death. And what better way to enter the heavenly choir than like John Wesley and King David with the voice well-tuned and already warmed up for worship, just already singing as we walk into the choir. And it may be that David's desire to praise God forever and ever was expressing a hope for life in God's house beyond the grave, a life for which David and the other psalmists are uncertain. It's, it's kind of shadowy, but they often expressed yearning. In the meantime, whatever lay beyond the grave, David was determined to praise God each day of his life, not periodically, not sporadically, not even regularly once a week. Each morning, whether dark or bright, would find David bowing down before the God he loved. So what is David's motive for praise? What is firing him up for a life of worship to God? Why the la-la-las and na-na-nas? Here's why. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. See, songs that are mostly about us and our emotional state, they're not going to sustain the fire of worship, especially when we're feeling guilty or depressed or exhausted. That's not what I want to be singing when I walk into this place. It's in those dark times, most of all, that we need to recalibrate our hearts with the greatness of God. Jeffrey Grogan reminds us that if the book of Psalms teaches us anything, it's that the only proper outlook for the people of God is to focus constantly on God himself, on his character, his deeds, his purposes, and so on. See, there are many subjects, even many good subjects, that this church can get sidetracked by. But the great theme of our worship the great chorus of our song and our preaching and our fellowship must be the greatness of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. See, our worship should be a reflection of God's greatness because a great God is greatly to be praised. God is great, therefore our worship should be great. There are no words that are too exalted, no orchestra too loud, no choir too large, for the worship of our great God. But even at its best, even when we strain every nerve in worship, it's always going to feel inadequate because, wonderfully, God's greatness is unfathomable. God is an infinite ocean. And however deep we lower ourselves into the crushing darkness, we will never touch bottom. I mentioned that this poem is an acrostic. The curious thing is that there's one letter missing in the middle. And it may be that David did this on purpose to deliberately show that his poems and our worship 
are always going to fall just a little bit short of God's greatness. By what name can I describe the incomprehensible? Gregory of Nyssa asked 1,600 years ago, an Orthodox theologian. By what name can I describe the incomprehensible? And by what speech can I declare the unspeakable? God is a vast mystery. And our theology and our preaching and our worship can apprehend God, we can touch Him, but we can never comprehend Him. We can never completely wrap our arms around Him. God is always going to be far greater than our small words about Him. And God is so great that His praise is never going to disappear from the earth. One generation shall commend your works to another, David proclaims, and they shall declare your mighty acts. Baal and Ashtoreth are long forgotten. Marduk and Dagon and the other ancient gods have long since crumbled into dust. But the worshipers of the Lord God of Israel are never going to be silenced while this earth endures. See, the words before us stretch across 30 centuries. Isn't that amazing? We are reading a poem written by an ancient king 3,000 years ago. And they express our own hearts and our own love for God. And these words stretch across 30 centuries, urging us to take up the chorus ourselves. It's as though each successive generation will have their own verse to add to an epic song of worship that celebrates the mighty deeds of God down through human history. And it's our privilege now, especially for those of us who are fathers and mothers, to enlist our own children into the choir, to teach them the words to the everlasting song so that the knowledge and praise of God fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that song's theme, according to David, is the mighty acts of God. And he was probably thinking of the Exodus, but the Christian's mind should turn to Easter. Easter, celebrated again today, not just once a year or even twice a year, But every first day of the week, we should be celebrating God's great act of redemption, how his mighty hand and outstretched arm have raised Christ Jesus from the death and delivered us from bondage with him. That's what we celebrate Sunday after Sunday. And notice how the psalm, it began by declaring God's greatness, but David cannot help going on to exalt in God's goodness. See, the These are not two themes. They're one theme. You cannot tease apart God's greatness from his goodness. They're meshed together. God's greatness is his goodness, and his goodness is his greatness. God's mighty deeds are deeds of salvation, which is why David says that the coming generations will pour forth, literally bubble over with the fame of God's abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of his righteousness. In verse 8, David declares, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding, rich in steadfast love. And if those words sound familiar, it's because they're from the book of Exodus. Remember when Moses made so bold as to ask God, show me your glory, an incredible request to make? And you might remember how God hid him in the cleft of the rock, tucked him away in the cliff, and then passed by. And what did Moses experience then? Was it the dark cloud 
and fearsome thunder of Mount Sinai, the lightning and the flashes of glory? No, when he asked to see the glory of God, he heard the words, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. See, when we ask to see God's glory out of all the aspects of his character, he chooses to answer by revealing, by proclaiming his goodness. He is gracious and merciful to the weak and the sinful. Very good news for us all this afternoon, isn't it? He's slow to anger, patiently delaying judgment so that all can be won to repentance by his kindness. And best of all, he is rich, literally great, in steadfast love. Steadfast love, one of the greatest words of the Old Testament. God's steadfast love means his unswerving covenant loyalty. Like a man who stays by his wife's side as she descends into dementia, or a woman who takes back her adulterous and ashamed husband, God upholds commitments he might be expected to abandon. Though we wander and we forget, the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And God's goodness is not a tiny, narrow thing. In verse 9, David rejoices that the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. It's not just us, God's people, who enjoy his goodness. The sun shines and the rain falls on all of humanity, the just and the unjust alike. And God's goodness is over his entire creation. That's why the entire created order will respond in thanks to the God who gives life and joy so abundantly. Psalm 145 began with God being described as the king. And then in verse 11, David speaks of the glorious splendor and mighty deeds of God's kingdom. And just like in the New Testament, the kingdom of God does not refer to a physical country, but to the rule and reign and power and dominion of God. In fact, royalty is the main theme of the Psalms. Kingship is what the Psalms are all about. The earlier chapters focus on the human kingship of David and his struggles and his enemies. But as the book progresses, the supreme kingship of Yahweh fills the horizon and dominates the future. David exclaims, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. It's the same confession Nebuchadnezzar makes in the book of Daniel. God will never die. God will never abdicate and God will never be overthrown. His reign will never fall into shadow. So if we had to compress the entire book of Psalms into one verse, it should probably be Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. The universe is not governed by blind fate or malevolent beings or impersonal processes. It's governed by a personal God who is calmly directing all events to fulfill his plans. The God who abounds in goodness and steadfast love and faithfulness, is not a small, feeble godling 
who means well, but unfortunately lacks the means to get the job done. See, we parents often are unable to keep our promises to our kids. We'd like to, but circumstances get in the way and unforeseen events arise and we have to apologize to them. But that is never the case with God. His goodness and his greatness join together in his universal kingship. As Psalm 115 says, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. And what pleases God? Pouring good things onto his children, pouring good things onto his creation. See, goodness without greatness would be useless and frustrating. We could not worship that God. But on the other, on the other hand, greatness without goodness would be terrifying. There have been many mighty kings and rulers down through the centuries, and they've recorded great deeds, but few, few have been good people. Joseph Stalin, one of the greatest, most powerful leaders of the last century. But the propaganda posters of happy, suntan children gathered around combine harvesters were just papering over the brutal truth of his regime. A regime built on secret police and show trials and mass starvation. But that is not how God runs his universe. The glory of God's reign is not in enormous statues and grandiose palaces and military parades of tanks and missiles going past the review stand. He shows what true kingship is like, upholding those who are falling and raising up all who are bowed down. That is what a true king does. That is what a good king does. The Sri Lankan scholar Vinath Ramachandra points out that in the ancient world, the power of the gods was channeled through the elites of society. And naturally, the gods reinforced royal and priestly domination. But here, in Israel's rival vision, he writes, it's not the powerful, but the orphan, the widow and the stranger with whom Yahweh takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. Our God, brothers and sisters, is completely unlike the gods of rival religions. He stoops down to help the weak, the sinful, the discouraged, and the exhausted. That is the God that we worship. And so the smallest of creatures and the humblest of human beings can look expectantly to God. And he gladly feeds and satisfies those who depend on him. God is not tight-fisted and stingy. David describes him as opening his hand wide. He's exuberantly scattering blessing on his world. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus suggested. You do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he asks, are you not much more valuable than they? There is no subject of God's kingdom no matter how small or how humble, who's hidden from his kind eye. As David rejoices in verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. God's righteousness, in Stephen Westerholm's words, God's righteousness is his faithfulness to his people that moves him to set things wonderfully right when they've gone disastrously wrong. When we sing that God is righteous, we're rejoicing that he's living up to his responsibility and role as God the King. He's fulfilling the commitments he made when he adopted us as his people. 
And notice that God is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The goodness of God saturates everything he does in our lives. Everything he does in our lives, including those events which stagger our small faith. And when things are difficult, we remember that the Lord is near to all who call on him. When we cry out to God in pain or desperation, we discover that he's, he's already at our side, comforting us with his presence and watching over everything that happens to us. The promise is for all who call on him in truth. Calling on God in truth means that we're not, we're not hedging our bets, we're not bowing down to other idols on the side or trusting in our own resources. True prayer and true worship means that our eyes are fixed on God and God alone. You'll notice that in the closing verses, those who call on the Lord are also those who fear him in verse 19 and love him in verse 20. Fear and love mingle together in true worship. Old Testament and New Testament. Here's Hebrews 12 reminding us, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Even in joy and thankfulness, when we're dancing before the Lord, he is a consuming fire, and we bow down before him in fear. In reverential awe before his glorious majesty and his blinding holiness, we are not equal partners with God in worship. We are not equal partners by any means. Nowhere close. And when we worship, we must take God with utter seriousness, knowing that although God is slow to anger, there is a day coming when he will destroy the wicked and the faithless. And so if fearing God is how we respond to his awesome greatness, then loving God is how we respond to his goodness. And as we reflect on God's awesome deeds on our behalf, on the faithfulness and righteousness and the steadfast love and extravagant generosity that pervade all his ways and works, there should be an answering response of love to God. Psalm 145 teaches us that God's great goodness is the sun around which our worship should orbit. We can never really distinguish God's greatness from his goodness because there's nowhere that God expresses the splendor and glory of his kingdom more than in expressing good to those who cry out in need. And when we bow down before God's great goodness in fearful love, then we are experiencing true worship. Now, since David wrote these words 3,000 years ago, God has revealed much more of his greatness and his goodness. In Christ, God has demonstrated gloriously his saving righteousness and his covenant loyalty. In Jesus, the messianic Hope of a Davidic king and the reign of Yahweh merge into one. The Son of God and Son of David shows us the glory of true kingship. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to comfort all who mourn, to clothe the grieving with a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Nowhere is the great goodness of God revealed in more brilliant glory than in the person and work of his son, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the one we are going to worship for all of our days, forever and ever, in joy and gladness. David ends his poem by renewing the commitment he expressed in verse 1. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And may our own worship today and tomorrow until the end of our days and beyond into eternity fulfill the closing exhortation of this of his final psalm. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, we thank you for your greatness and your goodness, for your great goodness, for the mighty acts that you have wrought, how you have rescued us from death and darkness through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ the King. We pray by your Spirit that you would turn us into the kind of worshipers that you are seeking, people who worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, there are many things that distract us. We ask that you would help us fix our eyes on you. We cannot stir ourselves up to true worship. We need you to be working in our hearts because otherwise these are just going to be words that wash over us. Make us into men and women and children filled with joyful fear and glad love as we bow down before you, our great God and King. In Jesus' name we pray and in Jesus' name we worship. Amen. Amen. Let the worship team come up and we can stand and continue singing our praise to our great and good God. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.